As we prepare our hearts to hear the Word, let me introduce you to the preacher of the Word today, Dr. Don DeYoung, is no stranger to many of you. Uh, if he is not familiar to you, let me read a little bit about his background, and then we'll welcome him up. <clears throat> Dr. Don DeYoung holds an emeritus science faculty position at Grace College, following a career in t teaching and research. Don is a graduate of Michigan Tech, Grace Seminary, and Iowa State University with Ph.D. in physics. He has written 21 books on the Bible and science topics, and we have many of those in the foyer today. He speaks on a broad range of Bible science topics and believes that the details of nature are a powerful testimony to the Creator's care and purpose for us. As I was talking to Don uh, last week, he said that uh, they came to Warsaw Winona Lake in, in the 1970s for Grace Seminary, and like so many, uh, decided to stay and uh, has enjoyed the journey that God's had him and his family on uh, ever since then uh, as he's ministered uh, worldwide. Uh, he's been a great blessing to the community. Um, would you give Dr. Don DeYoung a warm welcome as he comes? Well, good morning, church family and friends. Appreciate the opportunity to share with you today. So yesterday, we did a whole lot of Bible science around here. We talked about everything from the dinosaurs to deep space. I remember one young fellow brought his fossils along, and he said, Mister, can you identify these fossils for me? And we did it. It was all part of the fun yesterday. <clears throat> so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about uh, an event that changed the world. And of course, this is the great flood that occurred back in the days of Noah. Now, this event is important for several reasons, and I might mention a couple of them. First, the Genesis flood shows us that God, in his own time, brings correction to this world. Now, God is patient, so patient. But sooner or later, a time of judgment comes. It's all a good reminder to us that we are responsible to our maker. Now, the flood is also important because it has long been challenged. In fact, probably more than any other story in the Bible. Many theologians and scientists reject the idea of a worldwide flood. You know, the story of Noah's Ark is well known. Everybody's heard of it before. They just don't, do not take it seriously. Of course, it shows up in many places, and uh, they have these kind of cute little pictures of what the Ark might have looked like, and it's kind of fun for kids to get into this. In fact, in time past here at Community Grace, we had a, uh, a preschool that we called Noah's Ark Preschool. It was a good name. Well, the Ark did not look like this picture. And actually, if there had not been a Noah's Ark, you and I would not be here. It's a serious story. So the critics, they really poke away at this story and raise all kinds of questions. They'll say things like, now Noah's Ark, it's impossible. I mean, you're talking Old Testament times. Weren't those people primitive back then? And uh, how do you get all the animals on board? What is this, a floating zoo? What a story this is. Their critics will then say, 
a worldwide flood. Now, really, where did all that water come from? You're talking lots of water. And uh, where did it go? The critics go on and on. Show me the evidence of this Genesis flood. I mean, look around Indiana. We have farm fields. We have rivers, valleys, hills. But a worldwide flood should have really left its mark as evidence everywhere. You know, I've noticed one thing about the critics, and uh, we've heard them all. They usually have not taken the time to read about the flood story in, in the Bible, where all the answers to their questions show up in chapters 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 of Genesis. It's all there. So our position here at Community Grace is that the flood took place exactly as described in Scripture. And uh, as uh, Pastor Ridge's verses showed, it's a serious uh, story that uh, judgment time does come, again, in God's own time. So let's do this. Let's take a little look at um, some of the details that the critics bring up. And our first stop would be um, the, the ark, Noah's ark. And we can read about this. There's a blueprint for it in Scripture. And we can see this in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Genesis chapter 6. Some instructions are given to Noah. 6, verse 14. God is talking to Noah. So make yourself an ark of cypress or gopher wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. And Noah went to work. He must have had some resources to uh, get the materials together and to hire a crew to help uh, carry on this project. Now, we don't know exactly what the ark would have looked like. And uh, maybe I can get a little help showing the next picture here, uh, just kind of uh, to look at the dimensions. Originally, those dimensions are in cubits, like 300 cubits long. And we think that typically a cubit would have been the length from Noah's fingertips to his elbow. That's the way construction worked. And that's about a foot and a half. So that's where we come up with those particular dimensions. You know, this might have been the largest building project up to this point in history as it all took place. Now, some of you are familiar with our uh, museum friends down in Kentucky, Answers in Genesis. They've built the ark sort of a replica, and it's their guess of what it might have looked like, and they've used some uh, creative uh, ability there. Uh, so uh, maybe something like this. Actually, they use a longer cubit, and their arc is over 500 feet long, and uh, this was uh, done. You know, I asked those folks down there, why did you build this arc? It cost them millions of dollars. Why did you do this? And they answered, well, it's for outreach. It's for evangelism. It's to show people that it actually did happen. I kind of like their style down there, building the Ark and the Creation Museum as well. As they were building this, they realized they wanted to be kind of close to uh, Old Testament times, and so they built this Ark out of uh, wood, 
And they thought, how do we do this? How do we construct an ark out of wood because it's a large structure and that's not used in building anymore? Where can we go to get some help in building something that's made out of timber? You know where they went? Northern Indiana. They went to Napanee to talk to the Amish building people. And the Amish jumped on board and helped build this and uh, were happy to uh, uh, cooperate. And so they had a hand in uh, doing this. This picture kind of shows before they filled it up with all sorts of resources. And uh, many of you folks have been there as well. Now, we, of course, can remind ourselves that this ark was uh, not built on one weekend in March. Originally, Noah and his people. It went on for some time, and we can catch the time scale as well. Let me take a look at this. The last verse of Genesis chapter 5 is the initiation of this project. Genesis 5, verse 32. Let's see how old Noah is when the project begins. Verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those patriarchs lived for centuries. Can you imagine the wisdom, the, the knowledge, the background that they would accumulate? We are a mere image of these early people that were close to creation and were frankly better off than us. They didn't have all the genetic problems that we've accumulated. So Noah is 500 years old and the project begins and then it gets completed over in uh, chapter 7, verse 6. How old is Noah in 7-6? Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. We just had a century go by while the ark was a building. The other reference I put in your notes mentions 120 years, which is an alternative, but one way or the other, the decades went by as the ark was going up, and I'm sure um, the scoffers were walking by taking a look at it. Well, Back to the skeptics, I don't care how big the ark is, you can't get all the animals on board. You know, a modern zoo, like even uh, the children's zoo over in Fort Wayne, takes a large crew to operate it, and they only have representative animals. So how many animals were on board the ark? We do not know. In fact, we don't know how many varieties of animals are on the planet today, especially in history. So let me do this by percentages. If you talk to biologists, the way they've cataloged life, it kind of looks, um, uh, well, I'll get that in just a second. I forgot I had to show you a little puzzle this morning because I was thinking of um, the, the size of Noah's Ark to have room for these animals. And so this picture is just referring to the volume of Noah's Ark. What you would have to do is take the length times the height times the width and get the volume. And so my question to you is the capacity of Noah's Ark would have been equal to how many school buses? Can you make your choice? Now, you know how these choice questions go. You can't use A, and you can't use D, so it's usually C, which is the correct answer here as well. 500 school buses is the capacity of Noah's Ark. Very impressive numbers. And by the way, you can also figure out the area with the three decks. Noah's Ark would have been as large as 50 American homes. It was like a whole neighborhood. There was lots of room for the animals and for their food supply and exercise area, whatever else was needed as God planned the whole process. But anyway, back to the animals. How many animals were on board? Let me just do it by percentages. Of all the creatures that have been cataloged, over half of them 
live in the water. There's a lot of uh, aquatic life. This is in the oceans, in the freshwater lakes, in the rivers and streams. Now, some of you have been to the coastline and have looked in a tide pool, and you can see all the colors, all the tissues, all the life that's there. That's an indication of the immense life that's in water. So we're talking about the flood, and now we're talking about the animals. Our first category, the water life, do we need to bring that on board the ark? Do we have aquariums on the ark? Well, no, this is a flood. I think these creatures are on their own. Now, it gets complicated because during the flood, fresh water gets mixed up with salt water. Some sea life can handle that, and some can't. I must tell you, we find lots of fish fossils, billions of them, schools of fish that got caught in the mud and all the debris of the flood and got buried. Even the state of Wyoming is famous for fish fossils. However, some fish, some aquatic life can handle that mixing of fresh and salt water, so some certainly survived. There could even have been a lens change. You know, salt water is heavier than fresh water, so maybe there were different layers of this flood water where some of the fish could uh, survive. One way or the other, I'm moving on to the next category. 30% of all the life that's been cataloged are the little critters. And now that it's spring outside, they're all waking up again, the bugs, the insects, and there's lots of them. Now, perhaps we should bring those on board the ark. Watch out for the termites, by the way, because it's a wooden ark. But, you know, you could put them in a shoebox, and they'll probably sleep for the whole year, all the insects. Maybe they survived outside the ark. I'm sure there was driftwood and things like that. So we're not sure exactly what happened to the insects, but they were all survived. Even the mosquitoes survived the flood. I'm now down to the last 10%. These are the creatures that would take up some room. Dogs, cats, horses, things like this. And uh, this is what would fill up the ark. Now, you know, you've been to a zoo before, and when you think about this, there aren't that many large animals. It's a limited number. And so, again, I would uh, uh, suggest to you that there was plenty of room for these creatures in every way. You know, we've learned something about this maybe in recent years. Um, one magazine that I read is, and maybe you do too, is uh, National Geographic. I have on the screen here an article. It was a cute title that they had. It was an article about... Um, you know, canines, the whole dog kind. This magazine is rather irritating because every month it pushes evolution and our animal ancestry, and that's just plain wrong. But if you read between the lines, it's all good creation evidence. So this article says that the DNA of a wolf is almost identical to your pet dog. They've got the same blueprint, the same insides, which means that even these different types of dogs could uh, mate with each other. This reminds us that when these animals go on board the ark, you don't need to have every kind of uh, domestic dog there is. The German Shepherd, the Lassie, the, the Poodle, all of them. I would suggest that there were just two dogs that went on board the ark, a male and a female. And from them, when they came off the ark, all our different varieties have shown up today. I don't want to use the word evolution. I don't even like the word. But God has built variation within the created kinds for different types of dogs. And from that pair off the ark, I expect that we got coyotes, dingoes, foxes, wolves, 
It's all the dog kind. So that area is still being explored, but you can see how that brings down the number of creatures that were on board. In fact, back to our museum friends, they uh, estimate that there were maybe 6,000 creatures on board the ark. But with over 100,000 square feet, there was room for these uh, animals in every way. Well, the critics again say, I don't care how big the ark is, I don't care how much time you have, you still can't do this. Because, you know, animals fight, and uh, they have babies, and they need food. And you got to say, at this stage, you know, you are correct. The story is impossible in our own strength. Even a limited zoo is a, quite a project. And what we have to realize is that God is involved with the story, helping it to take place. The whole story is supernatural. Let me show you what I mean. Over in Genesis chapter 7, verse uh, 15, there's a note on the animals and how they got to the ark. Noah did not have to go all over the planet with butterfly nets and cages and capture these animals and drag them back to the ark. No, God took care of it. 7, verse 15, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. God caused some kind of supernatural migration. Here come the animals two by two across the countryside. What a sight that would have been to the ark as it was completed. Chapter 7, verse 16. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. God was there and shut the door of the ark. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the animals and livestock that were with him in the ark. Of course, with God, all things are possible, and he was helping the story to take place. It shows the value that he puts on Noah's family as well as uh, animal life. So yes, the story is impossible in our own strength, but God had it happen. And by the way, when it says God remembered Noah, that means he gave special attention to this story that we are exploring. Some would say, now wait a minute. This is Old Testament times. These were early people. They were primitive. They didn't have the ability to do this, to build this ark. Well, yes, they did. In fact, when you look closely at the first people that were on this planet, it's quite impressive. Genesis chapter 4, 17 talks about Cain who built a city. Genesis 4.21 talks about Jubal, a man who was a musician and made musical instruments. These are the first generations that God made on earth. Genesis chapter 4, verse 22 talks about Tubal Cain, a man who was an expert in metallurgy, working with metals and foundries. From the beginning of time, these people were very talented and gifted and useful for humanity. So we're still talking about uh, the ark and the animals. Let me ask a question that's kind of a stretch here. Do you think that there were dinosaurs on board the ark? And who's taking advantage of this poor dog here? I just kind of like dog <laughs> pictures, and he's kind of putting up with it, and it's kind of funny to look at. Well, as we uh, discussed this yesterday, we realized that dinosaurs were part of the creation week. 
They did not live 65 million years ago. They were part of the first week. They were made on day number six. And Adam named them. And they lived with early people. We haven't heard the last word on dinosaurs, this whole idea that they are swept under the rug of history. My answer to this question would be yes, they did go on board the ark. Well, maybe it was small ones. One thing we know about dinosaurs, the older they got, the bigger they got. They never stopped growing. So we always think of the old timers, the huge ones. They started small. They came out of eggs. So maybe it was the youngsters that went on board. Yes, they as well are part of this ark story. And then one more thought about the ark. Have they found it? You know, it landed over there in eastern Turkey on Mount Ararat, which is really a whole mountain chain. And uh, people have gone over there searching for Noah's Ark. It's kind of interesting ex exploration. My own thoughts on this are that Noah's Ark has been found. And then it's been lost again several times over history. And today, once again, we don't know where it is. If you look at the diaries of uh, explorers from the past, many mention, even centuries ago, of being in the vicinity of Noah's Ark. Today, we don't know where it is. In fact, it may be no more. Since it was made out of wood, maybe it was disassembled for building material for, for early people. Or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just gone because Mount Ararat is a volcanic area. Maybe it's been burned up. And uh, there's snow and there's glaciers, so maybe it's been ground into sawdust by now. We don't know. We don't need it. Faith, things that are not seen, are part of the cornerstone of our Christianity. But it would be kind of interesting if God would reveal that to us. We could go out there and take a good look at it. But uh, wait and tell. I'm not sure God reveals relics like that from, from the past. Well, so much for the ark. We're looking at some of the details of this uh, uh, amazing flood story. Let's move on to the water. When you look closely at Scripture... It turns out that the water has two sources. It's coming from two different places. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. The waters. Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs or fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates, or windows, of heavens were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. What a detail that is. It mentions the days and the years. Why do we have that in Scripture? God's telling us that this story did take place exactly as he's describing it. So it sounds like we have the water coming down from the sky, the windows of heaven, and it's also coming up from the ground, the, the, the fountains of the deep. So just to think about this for a moment, you know, there's not enough water in the sky today to flood the whole earth. You might squeeze a couple inches of water if you'd uh, take all the humidity out of the air. And some of this has suggested that the early earth from Adam to Noah was a different place, that it was surrounded by more moisture, and it's called the vapor canopy theory. And not all creation uh, uh, scholars accept the idea, and so it's just a possibility. But from the physics of this, we know that you could suspend many feet of water in the upper atmosphere. It would be invisible. You'd see the sun, moon, and stars right through it. But you could hold a lot of moisture up there. You see, if it was there, it's gone now. God would have put his hand on it, and it collapsed. 
the source of the flood water. One thing this canopy might have done, by the way, is help people to live longer. Now, you don't get very many graphs on a Sunday morning, and you can be thankful for that, but I can get away with it. Just look at the red line. It shows the lifespan, the longevity of Old Testament people, which rapidly falls off and shortens how long people live after the time of the flood. Before the flood, average lifespan, 900 plus years. After the flood, three score and 10, the same uh, you know, kind of lifespan we have today, give or take. Something happened after the flood that we don't live as long. Now, that's just as well, really, but uh, we're not sure what that is, and it might somehow be connected with this vapor canopy, which uh, could have protected from radiation or increased the air pressure. We just don't know. Anyway, we got water coming down from the sky, and we also have it coming up from the ground. Now, here's a picture that we had yesterday talking about the water cycle. Remember how the water kind of moves through the environment? And uh, this does not happen on the moon. This does not happen on Mars or anywhere else in the universe, as far as we know. It's a very special treatment of water that God's given us on the earth to purify the earth and uh, water your garden. Now, a lot of that water is underground, and some of us tap into that for our water source, groundwater. And sometimes that water is under pressure, and in fact, it can even come flinging out of the ground, like in uh, uh, Yellowstone National Park, where you have Old Faithful. There are thousands of these kind of geysers all around the earth. The suggestion is, at the time of Noah, there was a lot more water underground. It was under more pressure, and when God took his hand off, up it came. The fountains of the deep breaking loose to flood this world. When God cleanses the earth, he does a very thorough job. Even though you spell this kind of story out, some folks will say, I don't believe it. Maybe it was just a local flood that took place in Noah's neighborhood. It's really a popular idea, but it's wrong. In fact, if it had been a local flood, why did Noah take 100 years to build the ark? Why wouldn't he just have moved out of town? No, it definitely was worldwide. And you know, we have this promise in Scripture, the rainbow, which says there will not be another flood of this magnitude. We get small floods every year, including in Indiana, but nothing of this extent, and we can thank God for that. So anyway, talking about the water and planet Earth, just like I did with dinosaurs on the ark, let me ask another question that's kind of a stretch. Do you think that Mount Everest was covered by the Genesis flood? The highest point on Earth, five and a half miles high. Brave people climbed to the top of Mount Everest, <clears throat> and the ones who survive bring back interesting stories. Because when you get up to the top there and kick the snow out of the way, you'll find seashells. And you'll find a kind of rock which forms underwater. And so our conclusion is, yes, Mount Everest was covered by the Genesis flood. It has that kind of material on top beneath the snow and ice. But let me qualify that question. We are not sure whether Mount Everest was there at the time of the flood. I know scripture talks about the high hills being covered with water, 
But places like Mount Everest, those are young mountains, they're rapidly eroding, and so they may be post-flood. Now, there's an interesting verse over in Psalm 104, which is talking about the end stages of the flood, and it says what God did to end the flood, he pushed the ocean floor down, and he pushed the mountains up, so all the water ran off the land into the sea. That's where the water still is. And these mountains just kind of were pushed up supernaturally. And they caught seashells on the way. So again, that's the case that uh, Mount Everest and other high peaks may be post-flood. That's still being studied. By the way, that verse on the screen, I like the next one, which kind of continues. And it says, you know, when this was all said and done... God set a boundary that the water cannot again cover the earth. I like this stormy picture of uh, Lake Superior, which kind of, when I look at that, I think, you know, this water almost uh, looks like it would, it would like to cleanse the earth again, but God puts a boundary, a shoreline, and so there it is. So we have the water coming from the sky and coming up from the ground, and when that came up from the ground, it kind of changed the earth. Now, this next picture shows the entire planet, and you can see I got Indiana kind of right in the middle of this picture. And uh, there's the continents. And then I got all these little marks on this map, red and black. Those are epicenters of earthquakes and also um, volcanoes. And it used to be thought that these areas of tectonics would be any place on the planet, but they started mapping these, and um, these areas of disturbance follow along certain lines. A lot of them are underwater. And these days, we can go underwater with submersibles and see what's going on. And what we find is along these lines, the Earth's crust is cracked. It's like an eggshell, and it has these fractures. They're called fault lines. Though the, so the suggestion is that during the flood, God supernaturally breaks up the crust of the Earth, and these are areas where water came out of the ground, geysers and groundwater. In fact, when we go down to these, um, the seafloor to look at these trenches and, and, and uh, trenches, things are still happening. Now, this is a picture of the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, those arrows kind of show how the ground is still splitting. We are slowly getting further away from Europe as the continents move around. There's some truth to this continental drift. And along the bottom of the ocean, what we find, there are hot water geysers still coming out of the ground. It's like the earth has still not settled down to this whole flood event. It's not back in equilibrium, and there are still these springs of the deep. There are thousands of them under the ocean. Much water at the time of Noah, and still some leftover water still being expelled. Catch the magnitude of what this flood did to the earth. It's still recovering from this event when God cleansed the world. So anyway, these kind of pictures are already evidences for the flood. Not that we need evidence, but I think it's encouraging to us. So let me mention one or two more here. Oh, yes, rocks. Now, back in school days, you had to learn the names of rocks at some point. And we have these categories. We have metamorphic rocks, the kind that have been changed. And we have igneous rocks, the kind that have been hot, like fiery. And then we have sedimentary rocks. Well, Indiana is made out of sedimentary rock. It's made out of limestone. And you say, what? I see grass outside. I don't see, well, start digging, and you'll hit limestone. In fact, downstate, the limestone sticks right out of the ground, 
And I must say, they have the largest chainsaws in the world <laughs> down in Indiana where they are cutting into limestone. They ship this all over the place for building materials. This same kind of uh, sedimentary rock that forms with sediment, settles in water, is under Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North America. The whole world has this kind of rock, bedrock, underground. Now, geologists would say, well, there's been a lot of local floods to make that rock. And they're right, there are local floods. But there was also one global flood which led to this immense sedimentary rock that we have everywhere. We are surrounded by evidence for this global flood. Now, maybe the, one of the best places to, to notice this kind of a rock is the Grand Canyon. Some of you have been there. And there's the limestone, the shale, and the sandstone. And if you've got the energy, you can climb down to the bottom of the canyon, about a seven-mile trip, takes all day. And when you get down there, there's a whole world at the bottom of the canyon. You can get lost down there. Now, this is a side canyon, and if you take a walk along that one, there's something very interesting. My friend here has his hand pointing. You're at the very bottom of all these sedimentary layers. They're a mile thick, and you can see the platform that they are sitting on. This is where the flood deposits begin. It's just that straight that you can point at it. What happened is during the flood, during the initial months, the whole world was torn up and all this debris was put in in the, into the water, and then it started to settle out, and this is where it started to settle. The whole earth was sanded down to that white rock that's at the bottom. I think that's creation rock. That white rock has no fossils. As soon as you get above that handprint, that's where the fossils begin because of all the plants and animals that got tangled up in the whole flood event. So they call that the great unconformity, where something happened big on the earth, and we know what happened. And that same uh, separation is under Indiana. It's just buried around here, where it's exposed there in Arizona. Well, one more evidence, just to mention, flood traditions. All over the world, local people, even unreached people, seem to know about the flood. Missionaries will visit them and say, tell them about creation and the gospel, and uh, missionaries will mention the flood, and the local people will say, oh yes, I already know about the flood, because grandma told me about it long ago. It's just sort of a common story that people knew. Now here's a flood legend, it's not scripture, but it's in parallel. This is from northern Canada, the Arctic Indians. Angry with the giants, God flooded the world. He commanded a man to build a large canoe. The man survived, and floating on the floodwaters, he threw an otter overboard, who returned with a clod of earth to show that the flood was over. You say, wait a minute, it's not a canoe, it's an ark. And it wasn't an otter, it was a dove that uh, Noah released. But there are some common threads there. This story was so significant that people know about it, even unreached people. And here's one other uh, evidence that's kind of uh, curious. I put this symbol on your handout as well. Now, this is a Chinese character. They have a very uh, you know, artistic way of writing. And uh, this would be their symbol for a ship. It might be a cruise ship. It might be a cargo ship. But that's what they use. And not only that, but you can take this symbol and you can dissect it. And I have the words there. On the left-hand side, a vessel. That just means a pot or a pan, something that holds. 
The upper right part is numerical. It's the number eight. And the little square means for the breath of life. I've given you a riddle. What might this have to do with the Genesis flood? Well, eight souls on board the ark. Noah and his family and their three sons and their three wives. Eight people. Somehow this flood story has gotten embedded into these ancient Chinese characters. And it's kind of comical because China today is atheistic. And yet their language cries out these Bible truths. There's a whole book on this of some of their other symbols. And it's fascinating to look at it. Now, they might say you don't have any business analyzing our language, but it's there in every way. So anyway, uh, that was our quick trip looking at uh, Noah and the Genesis flood. That flood occurred, by the way, about 4,500 years ago in Old Testament times. The event shows us several truths. First, God has power and control over this earth. He still does today. After all, God made this world. Second, this whole flood story shows us that God is patient. You know, in Noah's day, the thoughts of the people were evil all the time, Scripture says, and God brought judgment to them. Well, don't we once again live in a troubled world? I'm not sure if the thoughts are 100% evil, but there's plenty of that. Sooner or later, this present system will end. Scripture tells us next time, Cleansing will not be by water, but will be by fire. And here's the third encouraging truth. During the flood, eight souls were spared on board the ark. Next time around, there is rescue. There's salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's make sure that we live for him. Thank you, folks. We'll close the service. Amen. Well, that was very edifying, encouraging, and I love the uh, salvation invitation at the end. Let me just say again, Noah and his family needed to be saved by going through a door. And in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says that he is the door. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Friends, we are sinners in need of a Savior, and God has provided that Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. And I just want to invite you, if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior from sin, today could be the day of your salvation, too. Uh, if you want to know more about that and need to know it and have a conversation with somebody, uh, just put that on your communication card, or even better, I and my family are going to be right outside the door uh, after the service, and we can come and talk, or you can talk to virtually anybody. I just pray that you respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting on your heart right now, uh, as you've heard once again, uh, the good news of salvation. Uh, when you come to Him and repent of your own self-sufficiency, He comes into your life, gives you life, and changes everything. It's what we need. It's what our soul longs for. So I encourage you to do that today. And as we close now, uh, we're going uh, to take a love offering for uh, Dr. DeYoung and the conference expenses. And again, the conference ends tonight at 5 o'clock. We'd love if you come back and join us for the, for the finale session. Uh, but we're going to pray now, and then the men are going to pass around during this last song the offering baskets. It's a free will offering uh, just to support this weekend. This is mostly for our own church people. 
uh, to do this. And regular tithes and offerings are given just like they are every other week on the, on the boxes on the walls. So just to, be clear, just to clarify that. Let's close in prayer and then our response in singing and uh, enjoy the fellowship of the day. Lord, we, uh, we come to your throne once again so freely, so, so happily, so humbly. And uh, thank you for what you've taught us today through your word. Thank you for strengthening our faith. Um, we really are grateful for faith, all purchased by Jesus, our Lord. Um, I pray that you'll indeed lead anyone who, here who has not put their faith in him to do so today, uh, to stop hesitating, stop waiting, and, uh, and live through Christ. Uh, for the rest of us, we rejoice and re reply to you, giving you the offering of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.